0: Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and you're listening to Famous Lost Words. Ladies and gentlemen, my co-host and the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. We're going to have a lot of fun with some one-hit wonders today, Tom.
1: Christopher, this really is going to be a lot of fun. When we decided to do this, I started firing some audio at you, and you sent me some stuff. Oh, yeah, you sent me that great segment with Ivan from Men Without Hats. So we are definitely going to play that, and it is Excellent talking about the safety dance. We also have on today's show a new wave classic that represents the best of the sound of that era, but also the worst haircut of that time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, our listeners don't have to deal with the haircuts. That's
1: exactly so right. Good. But,
0: but these these people had a shining moment in the sun, let's face it. And then sudden darkness followed <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> And it's often not their fault. Oftentimes, they went on to make really excellent music, mm-hmm. but you know the the forces of fortune did not sort of get together and, and, and give them another opportunity like the first one.
1: Well, exactly. And the funny thing is, the band we're talking about, there might be some people out there who are saying, wait a minute, those guys were not a one-hit wonder. They actually had a few hits, but they are certainly well-known the world over for one song, and that's the song we're going to be talking about. Also, we have a song about a dog that sold millions and millions of copies (laughs) and two songs about real-life girlfriends. One of them was happy to be written about and the other was definitely not. And it's very funny, very interesting story, both of them. Okay, Tom, let's get started.
2: Take my teeth and that's
3: not nearly
1: all tainted love Oh, one of the biggest one-hit wonders of all time, Soft Cell and Tainted Love from 1981. Well, Tom, it may be one hit,
0: but it's a big one, hitting number 1 in the UK while becoming the best-selling single of 1981 there. It also hit a peak of number 8 on Billboard but stayed on the chart for 43 weeks. Mark Almond of Soft Cell talks about the explosion of a hit song. Well,
4: we've been to the-
5: Working and developing and sort of um, sort of growing slowly in, in you know sort of in um, sort of ideas, but you know we were just sort of working on and we, we didn't expect things to like quite sort of hit like this because the track we released before Tainted Love in in, in Britain was like a it was a, a club success and a dance floor success and gave us a strong cult following, but then suddenly Tainted Love comes out and it's suddenly sort of uh, like a huge explosion. <laughs> When it first sort of sort of came out, it was like the action was slow and few people liked it, and and we thought, you know, we we, well, we thought it was going to be maybe another sort of dance floor hit or club success. And then suddenly, the, the, you know, everywhere was playing it. It was probably just must have been just one of those records that doesn't hit you immediately, but slowly sort of uh, worked its way in and sort of uh, and really gets you going.
1: Yeah, you can never tell when a song is going to be that big. And just take off, you know, you're kind of hoping, oh, maybe it'll catch on in the clubs. And it had the kind of, you know, like I said, uh, twitchy, but tuneful new wave sound (laughs) that you and I have talked about before. And, um, and... (laughs) I think we were talking about Echo Beach when we talked about that, but, you know, it had that that new wave sound, and it was great in the clubs and all that, and they had no idea it was going to turn into this phenomenon that stayed in the top 40 for more than 40 weeks, making it one of the biggest uh, songs of the early 80s. So, uh, yeah, it was unexpected, that's for sure. The Knack,
4: 1979
1: in My Sharona
0: unforgettable yeah tom doug feiger doesn't really get interviewed in this interview about (laughs) the knacks one hit (laughs) my sharana was number one in canada and the u.s and was named after the singer's girlfriend right it also inspired this is a little known fact michael jackson's beat it and of course weird al's first hit my bologna
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay but listen to this clip because something really cool is in this clip.
5: Well, she's rock and roll. That's uh, she's a little girl, and she's rock and roll. She's actually standing about ten
6: feet from me right
7: now. No kidding. Well, no tell kidding. her, tell her that I named my cat after her. <laughs> Will you? Yeah, because I did. Really, I did. <laughs> this guy named can I? Cat can I? Can is I talk? Girl can, yeah, girl cat. Hey, well,
8: as long as it's a little girl.
7: Well, of course. Would you mind if I talk to her for a second?
8: Well, just a second. Just a second. Come here. No, she doesn't want to.
7: She doesn't want to, huh? Uh, well... It's
8: not that she's shy. She just uh, <laughs> doesn't want to.
7: She doesn't give interviews. That's right. She that's does the, not give interviews. That's she's the selfish. thing.
1: Oh, I love the fact that Sharona is right there with him. Okay? That's that's so cool. Get her, and then put her on the phone. No, no, I don't want to... She doesn't want to talk to you, right? Uh, By the way, (laughs) Sharona is a real person, and obviously, and she's now a real estate agent in Los Angeles, and I heard that she was at Doug's bedside when he died in 2010 at the age of 57, but that might be just an urban myth because I looked all over the internet and I can't really find any evidence of that. But at the time, I heard that she was with him at the end. So uh there you go, mm. the knack and my Sharona as we celebrate more one hit wonders.
4: I heard you on the wireless back in fifty two, lying awake intently tuning in on you. If I was young it didn't stop you coming through. Oh,
1: oh. That's the Buggles from nineteen seventy-nine Video Killed the Radio Star, a song from seventy-nine that ushered in the eighties.
0: Here's a fascinating story that unfolds about a non-existent band with a huge hit. Uber producer Trevor Horn and songwriter Bruce Woolley wrote the song for Woolley's band, The Camera Club, Mm -hmm. who recorded the original version. Horn uh, brought in Jeff Downs, and a mere three months of production work later, they had the Buggles' first and only hit. Mm -hmm. Now, Horn had the magic touch as a producer in that era, having done Owner of a Lonely Heart for Yes, Crazy for Seal, And here's the biggie. Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax, which cost, at the time, an outlandish (laughs) £70,000. Anyway, here's Bruce Woolley talking about Video Killed the Radio Star.
4: Without going into a lot of detail, just briefly speaking, I knew Trevor, who I co-wrote the song with, in the days when I was a struggling songwriter in London. And we wrote the song roughly at the same time as I was forming the camera club. And, um, without really any purpose in mind, and then what we suddenly decided to do th- with some other songs which we'd written, which I wasn't going to use, was go to the studio on a one off basis and um design an anonymous act to uh, this is more or less the fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um to use these songs up and and somehow i still don't know how video ended up on the session i thought well maybe we'll see how it turns out you know you get carried away uh...
7: the song was written by yourself and trevor and and no
4: jeff didn't actually do any of the writing oh he didn't jeff had a hand in some of the arrangements
7: and Trevor and Jeff are, are both members of the Buggles. Yes, they are, they are the Buggles. Yes,
4: that's right.
7: And when was that group formed? Was that formed before, prior to yours, or were they already in that group when the when the song was written? Uh, it was. It's not really a group. You see, this
4: is the thing. There's, it's just the two it's of a, them. A session act with the two of them at the helm. I see. And um, the demos, which I referred to earlier, were done by the three of us and um, a session drummer and a, a load of hired keyboards. And also some a uh, girl singer as well.
7: So you were on the Buggles record as well
4: yourself, were you? No, because what happened, um, there was a bit of dispute, and... Okay. Anyway, I said, well, look, I can't get involved, because I got the album on CBS coming out, and, um... Well, sort of said, best of luck, chaps, and they got off... They got quite a good deal with Island Records, actually, so, um... That's how it, it sort of came about. There was a bit of a, a, a mini... Rivalry back in England regarding the release of, of uh, video, but we agreed they should release their version because at the time we felt we had other s- tracks on the album which we felt were stronger and more in keeping with our direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and in retrospect, I think their version is probably more suitable for the UK market.
7: But you must, you obviously had a burning desire to record the song
4: yourself. Oh, most naturally, yes. Uh, I felt there should be an optimum version. <laughs>
1: You know, I'm also a big fan of the Bruce Woolley version of that song. Let's hear the opening line from that, Adam.
4: I to the back in if I'm awake, I'm
1: Bruce Woolley in the Camera Club and Video Killed the Radio Star from 1979. I like that almost as much as the big hit version because, again, it was more new wave, whereas, uh, whereas the other version is almost more of a disco song, even though it's got those new wave elements. But Bruce also did a lot of work with the amazing Grace Jones. In fact, he co-wrote her song Slave to the Rhythm." Which is a phenomenal mm. song. And Christopher, I'm sure you remember that video. That was a very big video. Oh, yes. And that was also produced by his buddy, Trevor Horn, who Bruce has continued to work with over the years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. wild cherry and play that funky music from the mid 70s as we celebrate one hit wonders on this episode of famous lost words
0: i love the one hit wonders because <laughs> you know so often that one hit has a, a remarkable story in this case the fact that the story makes perfect sense and that the song's lyrics follow the events in the band's life make it no less unlikely singer and songwriter rob parisi of wild cherry tells it so well
8: we played locally and uh, we played rock and roll and uh, we had a real strong following uh, always you know like a, as Wild cheering or a local area a big following, and uh, we we got known as playing rock and roll you know so when the band got back together again we started playing rock and roll like the old band some places and clubs started to close down so we had to go to play discos well when we played the discos people complained you know the black people would come up and say you know you whiteys are a good band but you know you'd be better if you'd be playing some funky music you know Mm -hmm. So I finally, you know, just one night, man, I went back and told the guys, man, you know, we're we're stupid, you know, like we should be really doing what people want to hear. And if we could get in the middle of the black-white thing, we could make it, because, you know, like nobody's doing it now. Everybody was fighting it instead of doing it. So that night, I just happened to start writing down everything that happened to us. And uh, it came out, play that funky music. And that was it.
1: (laughs) So there you go. that's a guy who saw an opportunity for success and grabbed it, But like everyone else on this episode, it only worked once. More
0: one-hit wonders still to come on Famous Lost Words, including a Canadian band that had one of the oddest worldwide hits ever. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And this week is something different and something special. Do they burn out or do they just fade away? The One Hit Wonders. And this one coming up, oh, I can't wait. (laughs) Should we just get it out of our systems, Tom, right here and now?
1: Sure. You do your bad impression and I'll do mine. Okay, here we go. I love the nightlife. I love to boogie (laughs) on the disco round. You sound like Ethel Merman trying to do a disco song.
0: (laughs) Okay, hit me with your version there. Go ahead, hit me.
1: I want some action. I want to (laughs) live. You sound like an auctioneer with a cold. (laughs) So, anyway, the song we're talking about, of course, is I Love the Nightlife by Alicia Bridges from 1978. Let's hear a little bit of that right now. That is a great song alicia bridges Mm, 1978 i love the nightlife the song by the way was originally
0: called disco round because co-writer and singer alicia bridges thought it would have a better shot with the word disco or the word boogie in the title (laughs) (laughs) but i might add alicia bridges did not really like being considered a disco artist thank you very much
6: Well, I think there are some some things about it that bother me a little bit. Uh, I don't feel bad about being known as a disco artist uh, to those that have heard the record. The only thing that bothers me a little bit is that if that's the only record anyone has heard, then they may not know that there's more than that on the album. And that's sort of an accident that it crossed over into the disco market because it started out in our brains as an R&B song. Mm hmm they was found that they were queuing up two copies of it in the discos and, and then we came with a disco record. And uh, I never thought of it as a disco record.
1: Wow, okay, there you go. Alicia Bridges, I love the nightlife with some action.
2: We can dance if we want to. we can leave your friends behind. From 1982,
1: that's Men Without Hats and the Safety Dance, and Christopher, this clip that you sent me with your interview with Ivan from Men Without Hats uh, that you recorded when you created your book, Is This Live? The History of Much Music. Um, It's a great clip. I had no idea you had this.
0: I I actually forgot I had it until you mentioned including the song. And I went, oh, hey, I interviewed Ivan. And I remembered, too, what a gentleman he was and a very articulate and interesting guy. And I'm I'm glad to pull it out. Sorry about the audio quality. In those days, I was doing my interviews on the phone. so. It doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't hold up that way, but the
1: content hopefully makes up for it. Sure does. Okay, so let's have a listen to this. The story is that
0: that you wrote the safety dance after being hassled for pogoing in a club. Is that really true?
5: Yeah, that's a true story. Yeah. In tell Ottawa, me, tell me in the Ottawa, story,
0: would you, just so uh, I have it fresh.
5: Well, uh, we were we were in, the, in, I guess it was late seventies, you know, like, and, and I was hanging out. it was in the club in Ottawa actually, and uh, in those days there was like. You know, it was still disco. It was still like top forty disco playing in the clubs. But every now and then, they would, the DJ would slip in a little new wave tune. It would either be like Rock Lobster but B52s, or, or Blondie Heart of Glass, right? Or maybe you know, if you were lucky, you'd get like like uh, like a Devo like a song or something like that. But not you know, not not likely. Mostly mostly Blondie and 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 the B52s. And so we'd get up there and we get right on the dance floor and start jumping up and down and then obviously nobody <laughs> knew what we were doing and they thought we were just you know looking for a fight and we get tossed out and and that was it and it was it was you know it happened quite a few times every time we'd start pogoing we start we just get up there and just start jumping up and down and uh and we get told to stop <laughs> and and So that was, that was it. That was, that was basically the, sort of, the inspiration for the lyrics of the song.
1: Christopher, that's fantastic. That's Ivan Doroshek from Men Without Hats and talking about the safety dance. Now, that interview is actually substantially longer. And in the coming weeks, we're going to play more of it. It's so good. And he is so likable. And uh, he's just such a great storyteller. And he's also so grateful for that one hit that song that changed his life like so many others did on this episode of Famous Lost Words, One-Hit Wonders.
5: Another day's at end Mama says she's tired again
1: No one can even begin to tell her from 1976, that's Henry Gross and Shannon. That's a weeper. Oh, it sure is. I love that song, Christopher. I love it.
0: You know? I think we need a special category for guilty pleasures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe Shannon by Henry Gross is an honorary member of the Songs You Hate to Love Club. I don't I don't know. What do you think?
1: Um, it sure is hooky. Yeah, it sure is. But you know what? For once I'm not gonna feel bad about liking like a sucky <laughs> song. Like there are some songs that I feel a little bit bad about. I was, what, 14 when this song came out, and it just got me. I can't help it.
0: Well, and I don't know what the dividing line is, because there's certain things you look back on, you think, oh, gee, that's kind of the cheesy side of my taste range. (laughs) Like that song by Exile, you know, The Night Closes In. Um, Oh, oh, Kiss You All Over. Oh, I love that song. (laughs) Well, I do too, but, you know... (laughs) Do we want to admit that in mixed company? I'm not sure.
1: I have no shame, buddy. I love that song. Okay. I love the way it builds. Again, no shame, no apology. And is it a one-hit wonder? It
0: is. Okay. <laughs> so talking about Henry Gross's Shannon, mm-hmm. Henry has recorded 23 albums over more than 30 years of work, including the 2020 release, quote, too clever for my own good, unquote. <laughs> But for most of us, let's face it, it comes down to one glorious, shaggy pop classic called Shannon.
5: Shannon was written for uh, Carl Wilson's Irish Setter. Uh, and, you know, about Carl Wilson's Irish Setter for him. Uh, he was... I did a, I was always a big Beach Boy fan, and I, and I did tour with him extensively about two years ago. I did about... Uh, th- I guess I opened about 20 dates ago And I got to know Carl... And I'm not I mean, I, I got to know him a little, and I was at his house one day in uh, Los Angeles. And I just was mentioning that he, he he had these really beautiful husky dogs. We were talking. and I have an Irish setter named shannon, and he and he told me that he had had an Irish setter named Shannon that was killed. He was hit by a car about a week before I got out there, which just really freaked him. And so I wrote the song and just sent it to him. you know, and I'd never even thought about recording it. And then we just when we were putting songs together for the album, everybody said, "Hey, that's really good song I say.
1: Honestly, I don't care how sucky that song is I love it, those harmonies (laughs) And the visual image of that little dog Swimming out to sea Is just so sad and beautiful at the same time There you go, Shannon by Henry Gross On our one-hit wonder special
0: Still to come on Famous Lost Words Another one-hit wonder Based on a real woman and a real phone number And she was not happy about it this is Famous Lost Words, and we're celebrating the one hit wonders.
6: That's
1: Tommy Two Tone from 1981. Sorry. I had completely
0: forgotten about this song, so maybe that's another category yet. Mm-hmm one hit wonders you can't remember <laughs> or you've intentionally blocked out out yeah. of shame or something yeah? for, for sure well Tommy Two-Tone had their had their one legitimate smash and writer Tommy Heath has an amusing postscript of the song in this short interview clip now like any good one hit wonder they broke up three years after their big hit but then they reunited and it feels so good 24 <laughs> years ago and they're still at it <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why that that strikes me as a funny that, detail. That is funny. Here's Tommy talking about eight six seven five three zero nine Jenny.
8: When I wrote the song, I wrote it with a buddy of mine named Alex Claw, and uh, it was uh, you know it's kind of like half truth, half myth. Uh, you know, it's uh, I mean there was a there was a girl named Jenny who lit, lit, did live at that phone number. Um, but she doesn't live there anymore, nor does she have that phone number anymore. And, uh, you know, we kind of put together uh, the story from, you know, half-truth kind of. At any rate, uh, she doesn't talk to me anymore and uh, refuses to answer my phone call, and I don't blame
1: her. I can imagine how ticked off Jenny would have been, but imagine being a random person having that phone number when that song was a hit. So one such number was to a student in a dorm room at Brown University in Rhode Island and a woman in Alabama who kept getting (laughs) woken up at like 2, 3 in the morning. Her husband apparently wanted to wring Tommy Two-Tone's neck. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) Then radio station WLS (laughs) in Chicago bought the number from a woman and they got 22,000 calls in four days. And even as recently as 2004, it sure is. As recently as 2004, a mobile DJ picked up the number thinking it would be good for business, but he couldn't handle the overwhelming number of calls. And that is what. That's 24 years later.
3: It would sure do me good to do you good, let me help.
1: That's Billy Swan from 1974 and I can help. It would sure do me good to do you good, let me help.
0: That's a cool song. I love it. Billy Swann had a pretty good career going as a songwriter for other artists, including the Tom Jokic-approved Clyde McFadder's
1: Lover, Please. Lover, please, please come back. Mm -hmm, Anyway, I mm -hmm, love that mm -hmm. song. If you don't know that song, anyone who's listening, Clyde McFadder, Lover, Please. He used to sing for the Drifters. He left the Drifters, had just, I think, two hits as a solo artist, but one of them is Lover, Please, and it is fantastic. So up-tempo. It's like Jackie Wilson, kind of, uh, you know, Your Love Is Lifting Me Higher, that kind of song. And it also goes by in a flash. It does. It is
0: one minute and 45 seconds long, so get it while you can. Wow. (laughs) But you know what? Clyde Clyde McFadder had uh, another great song, and that is, uh, It's a lover's question. I'd like to know. You know? Just fantastic. I love that song. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Billy Swan, who wrote the Clyde McFadder song, has a good story about writing the billboard number one hit, I Can Help, a hit in the summer of 1976. And it's a story that kind of shows how trusting the very first instincts you have in things is often the best way to go, particularly in songwriting.
3: It came along at a good time. My wife was pregnant. (laughs) And uh, so it helped in that respect. But uh, I wrote it in uh, March of 74. I was in a little music room we had in this apartment we was renting. And Chris and Rita had given us a, an RMI organ for a wedding present. And my wife had a little electric drummer, and I was playing with that and the organ. And uh, it just kind of came all at once and wrote it in about 45 minutes.
7: Well, what uh, gave you the idea for the tune? I mean, that's uh, quite a... It's not, what would you call it? It would be an unusual storyline to, to say.
3: Well, I, I just started out with a line, you know, if you got a problem, I don't care what it is, you need a hand, I can show you this, you know, what comes next, I can help. Yeah. And uh, I wrote the three verses, and uh, I said, well, I'm going to have to have something to put between that second verse and the uh, third verse, so I wrote a little bridge.
1: It's funny how we connect personally to these songs, and the writers often do too when they write them, of course, but the first thing Billy Swan says at the beginning of that clip is how lucky he was that the song came out when it did because his wife is pregnant. And I believe he's speaking of the financial windfall for him because the song became a big hit. Oh, sure. So songs have a number of levels in terms of appreciation from the artists themselves, and it's completely different from what we as the listener experience. Well, a big song changes your life Mm -hmm.
0: in every possible way from the sort of gateway to opportunity that it provides to the relief financially that it can bring. So I, I think that you'll find you'll find that story in common, I think, with an awful lot of writers. I mean, they're, they're going to they're gonna talk about something else. They're going to talk about the song and the structure of the song or how many records it sold or whatever. But then if you keep working your way down to the human side of it, they may also go, yeah, and it kind of saved my butt.
1: That's right. And, I mean, you can speak from personal experience, too, having written a song um, that continues to be well-known to this day. We're talking about Black Velvet by Alana Miles. And, of course, your friend Mark Jordan wrote Rhythm of My Heart for Rod Stewart. And that became a massive hit. And he's talked about that, how that song completely changed the game for him. It changed the way he was perceived. It changed his, um, his ability to earn as a songwriter. It opened up so many doors. And he said it was a total game changer. And I imagine a song like I Can Help came, came along at exactly the right time for Billy Swan. That's what he said. And uh, Black Velvet came along at a great time for you as well. All true. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going now. This song is from 1972. Tell me what,
8: tell me what, tell me what. why can't we live
1: together? Timmy Thomas from 1972, Why Can't We Live Together. Oh, do you recognize that riff? Hmm. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that. But, Tom, I want to tell you, former Memphis
0: Session man Timmy Thomas busted out as a soul singer big time in 1972 with that memorable hit song, Why Can't We Live Together. Now, he continued to release records until 1994, and he had some success as a producer after that. But let's face it, that song was his calling card. But tell me, how cool was it that Drake sampled it for Hotline Bling?
1: Oh, yeah. So let's listen to the very beginning of Hotline Bling by Drake right now.
3: You used to call me on my cell phone
1: night when you need my love Okay, and now let's listen to Timmy Thomas talking about how he wrote the original version of that song, "Why Can't We Live Together?"
8: I wrote the song. Uh, it happened one night while I was just thinking about the worldly problems, you know. And it it, it became uh, mostly uh, instrumental at first. And uh, the more I wrote, the more I wrote, the words came to me. Why can't we live together? And uh, it all started like that. And I was very, very happy with what the tune did. I was and very surprised also because I finally found out that the world was really listening and people feel like I do, that um, we're ready for a better
1: world. And, you know, why can't we live together? Great stuff. Timmy Thomas, Why Can't We Live Together, which turned into Hotline Bling. Boy, I imagine he made a pretty penny from that as well. Here's the sampling. That's right. (laughs) Here's the sampling indeed. Okay, let's keep going. Famous Lost Words, One Hit Wonders. That's Flock of Seagulls and I Ran from 1982. Tom, you are going to get some pushback on the
0: inclusion of a Flock of Seagulls in our one-hit wonder show. Mm-hmm. Now, while I Ran was their biggest international hit and made them an essential part of the video era, they had other hits like Space Age Love Song and Wishing, in particular, that were bigger hits in the UK than I Ran. Yeah. And by the way, they still tour with Spoons member Gordon Depp on guitar, uh, starting going back to 2017. Wow! Yeah, Mike Score uh, of the aforementioned haircut uh, talks about the source of the song.
2: Iran. When I first saw that, I thought it was going to be all about the ayatollah and the hostages and all that stuff. What? But it's really about running away, or isn't it?
4: Yeah, well, it's uh, we're a non-political band anyway, so we wouldn't. Great. You know, we wouldn't have anything to do with that. I mean, we we'll leave that to the Clash. <laughs> <laughs> Iran is based on uh, the negative of a photograph that me and Frank saw. In, of all places, Zoo Records offices in Liverpool. And it was just like, it was a, a picture that stuck in my mind. And it, the words just sort of, when we started actually doing the music, which usually comes first, I just sort of kept getting this picture and I just started writing about these two people running away from this flying saucer. <laughs> which what it, what, was what the negative was, you know. and It was a negative of a flying saucer? It was a negative of a photo, yeah, of two people running down a street and there was a flying saucer after them. And that sort of just inspired the whole thing.
1: That's Mike Score from A Flock of Seagulls talking about the song, I Ran. Still to come, how one guy had to keep his band's identity a secret
0: before radio stations would play his song. And no, it's not the Guess Who.
1: Are we having fun yet with One Hit Wonders? We sure are. Let's have a little bit more fun. 1969.
6: Sugar. Oh,
1: honey, honey. That's the Archies and Sugar Sugar from 1969 written by Andy Kim, Canadian, and Jeff Barry. Go ahead, Christopher.
0: Well, Jeff Barry, mostly in collaboration with his then-wife, Ellie Greenwich, had an enviable string of hits in that era, including "Do Do Ron Ron by The Crystals, Then He Kissed Me, Be My Baby by The Ronettes, and Leader of the Pack.
1: Yeah, great song.
0: But none were bigger than Sugar Sugar, co-written with Montreal's Andy Kim. Hi, Andy, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, which they wrote for a non-existent band called the Archies. Here's the story so well told. Sugar Sugar,
7: okay, which I wrote and produced with the Archies. And it was a bomb. It was out, and at the station level, it was, okay, hey, we gave you your hit with this cartoon, Saturday morning cartoon group that doesn't really exist. And, um, you know, we weren't getting any real reaction. The promotion man for RCA in San Francisco loved that record. He somehow peeled the label off. I don't know if you ever tried to peel a label off. A commercial record he got it off or covered it or whatever and went into this big station in San Francisco played him the record so what do you think of that record, guys I, I like that I a nice record I said, will you play it he says well who is it he said, will you play the record he said well I would play that record yeah you know well tell me you play the record for a week or two whatever it was and um, I mean it's not dirty it's not by any uh, you know communist group I mean, there's no reason in the world that's no trick of any kind Perfectly legal to play this record. And he goes, "Okay, you got it. I'll play that." Who is? It? He said, "The Archies." I says, "Okay, I'll play the record." And at the time, San Francisco was the hippie capital of the world. And um, you'd think that perhaps an Archie record, about you know, a cute little record like that, wouldn't happen in that area. But it busted wide open. Now, a song that was, to date, has sold about 10 million records, and one is one of the top three or five uh, all-time selling singles out of that area. Okay, Bubblegum Record. A year later, Wilson Pickett cut the Sugar Sugar. Tom Jones has also cut it, a different style record of it. It's on the country charts right now, here, my secretary cut this out yesterday, 87 with a bulletin billboard on the country charts, I haven't heard the record yet. Rolling Stone magazine did a very interesting page, page, a three-page article on Sugar Sugar. That started, and, and their attitude was was quite nice, actually. It was kind of like heavy is as heavy does, and, and talking about people being embarrassed, embarrassed about things because they think they're supposed to be or not liking or liking things because they are supposed to be they said you're driving along in your car and uh, the jockey comes on tells you about a song that's coming on and it comes on and the guy's singing a song and you're singing along with it and you're liking it and then he tells you it was sugar sugar by the archies and you panic but it made the point that you like it until you feel you shouldn't you know
1: That's Jeff Barry talking about the song Sugar Sugar. What a great storyteller. And what a great point that he makes about loving music that is supposedly uncool.
0: Tom, it doesn't get any more straightforward than the tale behind Van McCoy's monster hit, The Hustle.
8: Well, actually, The Hustle came about as a result of my hearing about the dance, uh, which was starting to gain some popularity in uh, the New York discotheques. I had heard about the dance, uh, oh, I guess a couple of weeks before we were going in to cut the Disco Baby album. And uh, some of my friends who were disc jockeys here in the New York area had convinced me that it would be very important uh, to help the album insofar as the album sales in the discos if we included a side called The Hustle which is the reason why we included uh, The Hustle in the Disco Baby album.
0: There it is, The Hustle by Van McCoy, number one on Billboard in the summer of 1975. It sold a million, won a Grammy Award, and then no more hits.
1: Well, that's <laughs> true. But Van McCoy really is kind of a legend. Even though he's best known for that one song, he also wrote and produced songs for Gladys Knight and the Pips. And as you know, Christopher, I am an honorary Pip, otherwise known as a Pip Squeak. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. He also wrote for the... I did not know that. Mm. (laughs) He also wrote for the Stylistics, uh, Aretha Franklin, David Ruffin, Peaches and Herb, and Leslie Gore. So that came as a bit of a surprise to me because I knew he had quite a history. And Van McCoy died at quite a young age, only a few years after The Hustle became a hit. This is Famous Last Words, and this week we're talking about one-hit wonders. Let's go to 1982. (laughs) Thomas Dolby with the funny but wonderful One-Hit Wonder, She Blinded Me With Science from 1982. Tom, a very cool record.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, there's... And let's let's just say, to be fair here, there's a lot more to Thomas Dolby than his 1982 Billboard Top 5 hit. But it does stand as its creator's biggest moment in the pop world. Now, as well as working as a sideman with... People like David Bowie, Def Leppard, Eddie Van Halen, and other luminaries. Dolby is also a professor at Johns Hopkins University. He's an inventor and an author. And I have just one little note for you here. As a session player, he created the intro to Foreigners Waiting for a Girl Like You.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah, if you've forgotten it. It is an exquisite and memorable opening to the song, and 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 worth even if you don't listen to the rest of the song, which, which I actually love that song. Yeah, yes, me too. Um, check out the intro for sure. Here's the inside story of the video for Thomas Dolby's biggest hit. You
7: like making videos, I can tell. You uh, you've made quite a few actually. There were what a, a few from the the golden age of wireless yeah. itself, plus the Blinded by Science, which is a great video, mm. An amazing. How did you get Magnus Pike, Doctor Magnus Pike, involved first of all?
2: Well, I just turn into a real megalomaniac when I start uh, thinking about video. I get my peak cap on and my megaphone, you know, and I <laughs> go up and down in a crane, screaming instructions at people. Um, magnus pike got involved in fact at the stage of when we were making the, the the record because i'd been fooling around in the studio with some voiceovers and the engineer buzzed me through and said you know you're starting to sound just like magnus pike and i thought well it'd be great to hear it from the man himself sure science and science and um <laughs> so i called him up and to my amazement he was prepared to do it um if the price was right mm-hmm. and uh, he's quite a personality in britain actually isn't he yeah, he I mean, is. we see
7: him here as well with, uh, with yeah. that, that science show, but he's uh, probably one of the most well-known TV personalities over there, I would think.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see, he was perfect for it because I think everybody regards him as a hoax. Um, quite correctly which is exactly what i wanted you know
1: (laughs) funny how he kind of mocks magnus pike in that clip but it was a big hit for dolby and he also went on to record one of my favorite albums of the 80s that didn't get very much attention it's called the flat earth and it had some absolutely beautiful songs on it like layered synth but it just sounded so warm and it had my theme song from the 1980s It was a single called Hyperactive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I remember that one. That's a good one. Yeah.
1: All right. Let's keep going with our one hit wonders on famous lost words. From
6: 1979,
1: that is "Knock on Wood" by Amy Stewart. Boy, that has a massive sound to it, but it was only a one-hit wonder.
0: I think you have to realize that having one hit is an extremely difficult and unusual situation. Mm -hmm. And that to expect to have more than one is probably not realistic for most people. Right,
1: right. No
0: matter how good a singer you are. Yeah. This one was a number one hit in 1979, and it was a cover of an Eddie Floyd classic, Knock on Wood. Um, It got a Grammy nomination for the singer Amy Stewart and a platinum record, and then... Tumbleweeds. (laughs) The pop world is really cruel, perhaps no more so than to artists who identified with the disco era in the way that Amy Stewart did. In the first of these two interview clips, she talks about being the last to know when you've got a number one record.
6: They called me because my, my parents and friends... Stay on top of all of the news. And before I know it, they know it. You know, my girlfriend, she was telling everybody the day before I found out I was number one. She knew the day before, but I was out of the country, so she couldn't tell me. So she told everyone else. And when I called to tell everybody I was number one, they said, we know that already. We knew
1: that yesterday. So you like like being a a hit recording artist. Of
6: course I do. I think anybody would.
1: Oh, she is so likable in that clip. I love it yeah, she really is. She's mm-hmm.
0: utterly charming. And she sounds so ambitious in this next clip as she talks about all the things that she would like to accomplish.
6: Nothing ever lasts. I don't know how long disco will last, but it won't be forever but
7: but according to your your background, you you've got so many other things going for you
6: right i'm I'm really glad that I do. I was trained in lots of things. I was trained in um in directing in college and acting in college and and I also took classes in acting and including dance and voice and something. If I want to do films as well. You know, I don't want to just be a disco star. I want to be a singer. You know, they can sing almost, they can sing anything she wants to sing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want to just be a singer on that hand. I want to be an actress as well because I do have training in that. And I think I could do it very, very well. So I want to do everything. I want to be a total artist. And I don't want people to just look at me as being uh, a disco queen. No, seriously, I want to be a total performer. And I want to be a very, very good performer, which means I'm always learning and I'm always working. And uh, I don't intend to let anything stop me to get where I want to be and to uh, accomplish my goals in life, you
1: know? So the funny thing is, you and I and many of our listeners only know her through that one song, but she's actually done some of those things that she just talked about. She now lives in Italy. She's had a few European hits. She wrote and produced and starred in a musical about Billie Holiday. She played Lady Day herself And she's a goodwill ambassador. Just found out about that stuff just a few minutes ago, and I was so impressed because I felt kind of sad when I heard that second clip and going, oh, no, it didn't happen for her. But just because it happened in Italy, we haven't heard about it.
0: Yeah, and just because it doesn't happen in the same, like, earth-shattering, number one platinum record, zillions of, you know, sales way, doesn't mean that your career isn't a success. I mean, the fact that she's able to use the talents that she worked so hard to develop in many different ways, makes her, to me, a, a very successful artist.
1: Exactly, yeah. She uses that as a springboard. What I am is what I
4: am, you, what you are, oh, what?
6: What I am is what I am, you, what you
1: are, oh, From 1988, that's Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians and What I Am.
0: Tom, I have an amazing fact for you right off the bat here. All right. Yes, it's true. Kenny Withrow of the New Bohemians does say, you know... Eight times in 20 (laughs) seconds, and that's a new Famous Lost Words record. I just wanted to point that out.
1: You know, Christopher.
0: Hey, you know what? (laughs) I do like what I am, and I'm not sure about your feelings about it.
1: I like it. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. I really like the song. Uh, The only only time I've ever not liked the song or had some reservations about liking it is when you mentioned to me the weird line in the song uh, a few episodes (laughs) ago. What is that line again?
0: Well, she says religion is the smile on a dog. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Yeah, it's deep stuff and obviously far too profound for the likes of you and me. Okay, let's face it.
6: Yes.
0: (laughs) Now, Withrow and Brickell have the following to say about the theme of their first, last, and only hit song.
6: It's just a song for the individual, you know, to each his own type of song, you know. You know, just why get into conversations about heavy religion and philosophy and that sort of stuff when you know it's not just a little conversation you know that's kind of personal stuff you know and why just throw it out to just anybody you know that's you know mm-mm. that's yeah. important stuff. There's nothing sacred anymore that kind of thing. It's like good grief lighten up and just be yourself. You you are what you are through how you act and what you show people more than what you say and what you can spew out all your big ideas that's all. I was just it was me just being funny and goofy you know and kind of Angry all at the same time, just trying to say, hey, line up.
3: Did you guys know when you recorded that song and when, when you first started working on it that, that if any song was going to make it off the album, it would be that one?
6: No, not at all. I mean, that's just one funny little tune that we wrote without thinking twice about, and just, you know, we really didn't.
1: Fun song. You know, four years after that was a hit, Edie Brickell married Paul Simon. And they've been married now for 28 years.
0: And by the way, she's still making music. I heard something uh, lovely that she did with... um, Steve Martin. Steve Martin, yeah. Lovely music it was.
1: That's great. Yeah, I know they have some sort of connection, but I didn't know much about that. That's cool. You know, I suspect that it's
0: an SNL connection, because Paul Simon is very much a friend of... Saturday Night Live, people.
1: And that's where they met, huh? She yeah. was on stage performing What I Am. She says that while she was looking at, at him, they, they locked eyes while she's singing the song, and she almost lost her place in the song while she was performing it live. <laughs> Great stuff.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> okay, let's go back to 1981. That's Quarter Flash from 1981 and Harden My Heart with that wonderful sax sound by by the lead singer. Her name is Rindy Ross.
0: That's a cool sounding song still, isn't it?
1: It sure is, yeah.
0: I mean, they're a true one-hit wonder. They're from Portland, Oregon, and Quarterflash featured the vocals, as Tom mentioned, of Rindy Ross. Uh, And it was an unusual thing to have a lead singer um, play the saxophone. Yeah. Um, And the songwriting was mainly in the hands of her husband, Marv Ross. They did have a top 20 from their follow-up record called Take Me to Heart, but do you remember it?
1: I actually do, Christopher. (gasps) I worked, I kind of worked in adult contemporary radio at the time, so it wasn't maybe really a pop hit, but it was an AC hit, as we used to call it, and it was, take me to heart, don't expect a miracle, or something like that, but but it was good, it was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as good as Hard In My Heart. Also, I would like to point out one thing. They had the theme song from the movie Night Shift, and that is a great song, but it did not, chart very well at all but it had that classic quarter flash sound if I can call their sound classic but it had that smooth sound and it was a great song so Night Shift with Henry Winkler and Michael Keaton that movie
0: so they're really only visiting the one-hit wonder club, right? That's they're not right. members?
1: The, <laughs> that's okay, right. Yeah, don't tell them they're one-hit wonders, but they really are.
0: So Marv, who wrote their smash hit, Harden My Heart, has a great analysis of the song's success. And he explains how writers use the raw material of their own lives to create the storylines in their work.
5: At that time, I was having some personal problems in re- with my relationships with some of my friends and a um, lot of times i'll take those emotions that i have and i'll channel them into writing a song and uh, yeah. if someone was to just listen to the song uh, the first assumption would be that rindy is mad at someone that she's having a love relationship with and and uh that's the storyline of the song but that's not really it wasn't really that kind of a situation that happened but um i wrote two songs real close together that song and of the fool i wrote within about a month and um both of them were um I was using the emotions that I was feeling towards some of the friends that I had, and um, wrote those songs that way and um I really seemed to uh, really seem to be able to just sing them just exactly the way they should be sung.
0: Now Marv also explains how a song can impact a listener, and it 's not always in the ways that you would expect.
5: I played one show, and a girl came up to me after the show, and she said, "You know that hardened my heart you know, that just means so much to me. you know that was my divorce song. And I just well, your divorce song—that's a strange thing to say. And she said, "Well, you know, it just—it really helped me get through my divorce by by keeping myself strong and and keeping having my you know keeping a commitment to myself. And uh, and I and it just made me realize how much people tie into the music that you write and the emotions that I felt when I wrote that song have you know are three years old and I I don't I rarely even think about it and I you, you sometimes you tend to forget how important people take your music and. You know, when somebody comes up and says something like that to you, you go, gosh, that's, that's the power of music.
1: That's Marv Ross from the band Quarterflash talking about the 1981 hit Harden My Heart. So you hear what he said there. You hear that from a lot of songwriters. Lionel Richie was just saying in a, in a recent episode how songs have a profound effect on people that he could never have imagined.
0: Yeah, that is actually one of the true um, joys of having written a song that people know. Mm-hmm. Because once they know you've written it, and most songwriters obviously travel through the world incognito, Mm -hmm. not if you're Lionel Richie, of course. Right. Um, (laughs) But when people go, oh, you know, he's the guy that wrote that, and they go, oh, and then they'll tell you some story attached to the song and some unique place that it has in their life and how it underscored an important moment for them. Mm -hmm. And those things are really profound and very inspiring for a writer. By the way, Tom, as a tribute to the staying power of our one-hit wonders, I asked my 24-year-old daughter how many of them she knew, and she knew every single one of them with the exception of The Hustle and could sing them to prove it. In fact, she, she, she offered up the idea that she may know The Hustle if she heard a little bit of it, so right. she was covering her bases.
1: You know, that does say a lot. <laughs> it does say a lot because those songs do stand the test of time, uh, and even though they only had one hit, they really do uh, stay in our memories, that's for sure. Christopher, since we're talking about one-hit wonders, let's talk about some cool song facts related to one-hit wonders. Do you remember the song Bust a Move by Young MC? You want it. Oh, yeah. You got it. Okay, the bass on that song was played (laughs) by Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers, and that's a great song. Ah. By the way, Young MC, I think his name is Tony Young, he wrote the two big hits for Tone Loke. So he wrote Wild Thing and Funky Cold Medina. So young MC himself, as a writer, um, was not uh, a one-hit wonder. He was a three-hit wonder. So there you go.
0: I love the Funky Cold Medina, I have
1: to admit. (laughs) That's just such a cool song. Yeah, it's a great song. Really a lot of fun. Okay, uh, another one-hit wonder, uh, Chumbawamba. They had been together for 15 years before Tub Thumping was a hit. Isn't that wild? That's a long wait. Yeah, it sure is. By the way, I do have in the archive somewhere a Chumbawamba interview. I tried to find it. I cannot find it. Some of our interviews, because I know I've, I've heard the interview. I remember it. Some of them have just disappeared. And if anybody knows where the Chumbawamba interview is, <laughs> call me and let me know because I want to play it because it's a lot of fun. And those guys were pretty, very interesting because they they came kind of out of like an like an anarchy movement, right? And so it's quite, their story is fascinating. And, uh, and I'd love to to oh. play that stuff for you. Okay, let's keep going. We've talked about this one hit wonder before, Christopher Walter Egan of Magnet and Steel right. fame. You know, you are a... Ma- well, you know what, Adam, you just played. You are a magnet. Okay, play that part. For you. Magnet Steel, of 1978, Walter Egan, another great one-hit wonder. And that song and album were produced by Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, who also sang background vocals on that song. Not only that, Walter had a massive crush on Stevie at the time and actually wrote that song for her and about her. And they did date for for about a month.
0: Well, (laughs) uh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I understand the massive crush part. Yes. I'm sure more th- people than just Walter had a crush on Stevie, but yes, oh for sure. Not that many, not that many wrote a hit song for her.
1: Um, okay, so let's keep going. Uh, cool song facts about one-hit wonders: Doris Troy. Had a hit in 1963 ah, with Just One Look, which is a great song. love that song. Yeah. Oh, my God, Tom. You're hitting up.
0: There, you're, you you hit a vein. That's one I love. Yeah.
1: She also sang backup on My Sweet Lord by George Harrison and You're So Vain" by Carly Simon.
0: Can we just play a tiny bit of Just One Look, just, just for me? I want to okay. get that shiver back.
1: Sure. Here it is. Just one look and I felt so. one look doris Mm. troy from 1963 that is (sighs) a great vocal performance Oh man killer linda ronstadt did that didn't she yeah she did yeah all right there you go cool song facts from one hit wonders on famous lost words
0: that does it for our one hit Wonders show i hope you enjoyed it because it was a lot of fun for us tom
1: i had a great time christopher our show famous lost words is produced by adam karsh executive producer rob farina Don't forget to check out past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.